Welcome to the Change Pod, where you come to learn about how change happens. My name is Mark Thompson from Oxford University. And I'm Matthias Scholte from HEC Paris. What do great leaders in times of change have in common? You probably say they have a great vision for the future. And they are bold in making the vision come true. They are self-confident, they grow when challenged, they are charismatic and inspiring. This is what we associate with transformational leaders. But these are also the traits of narcissistic leaders. Those who act out of self-admiration, have grandiose thoughts and visions, but lack empathy and self-reflection. Those who become scrupulous and unethical in pursuing their goals. What are the effects and side effects of narcissistic leadership during change, and why do we see so many narcissists at the top of our organizations and in politics in the first place? How can we protect ourselves when working for a narcissist? These are some of the questions we want to talk about today. We will also talk with one of the most prominent researchers on narcissistic leadership, Michael Maccabee, about his new book, Psychoanalytic and Historical Perspectives on the Leadership of Donald Trump. Trump obviously has become the prototype of a narcissistic leader, but Michael has a somewhat different view on Trump and narcissism, as you will see. So Mark, it seems that narcissistic leadership is alive and well despite or perhaps because of the current turbulent times. I think that the broader issue which you're really raising is, um, have we, I mean, if we think of the context of COVID, crisis, uncertainty, lots of change happening at the minute, and much more coming down the road, are narcissistic leaders going to serve us well going through this particular challenge? Have we hit peak narcissism in terms yeah. of our leadership cadre? Or actually, is this context going to generate more dependence on narcissistic leaders to to get change done. So I think we're at a very interesting pivot point now, actually, both politically, but also organizationally in thinking about leadership and change. Yeah, I mean, narcissistic leaders are not only dominant in politics, but also many organizations. I mean, it's interesting in the business school world. I mean, there've been surveys done of, of MBA students in particular coming through, and there's been a noted rise in the narcissistic personality type within the MBA. As a, as a cohort over time. So there seems to be a, a, a general increase in the supply of narcissism oh dear. <laughs> into organizations. I mean, we're training narcissists in, in business schools and they're going out into the organizations, which also might be selecting them as well for various reasons. And that's an interesting discussion because if we think about the need for entrepreneurialism, innovation, change, all the rest of it, in a way, creates the context a bit for, you know, recruiting or selecting a narcissistic leader who's going to change the world for you, who's going to be entrepreneurial. Yeah, I think you raise an important point here because venture capitalists and boards of directors often like and select narcissists. They come with a bold vision, lots of energy, charisma, and most of all, self-confidence. Right? I mean, there's all this research about how we perceive self-confident people as being more powerful and are prone to select them into leadership roles because they seem to know what they're doing. But there's a fine line between self-confidence and persistence on the one hand and 
arrogance, entitlement, and a lack of adaptability on the other. So I think the question is probably, how can we find leaders who are self-confident and persistent at the same time adaptable and empathetic to others? Mm. Are we expecting too much here, looking for the Swiss knife of leadership, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting organizational problem. I mean, do you need a narcissistic leader to start something, but then actually you need another type of leadership model to sort of stabilize and grow and consolidate and build collaboration? Well, good luck to ask the narcissist to give power to others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we might come to some stories about that. I mean, it's interesting with some of the examples we've had recently, don't we? With Adam Newman from WeWork, who was going to transform the whole world of office work with these kind of shared office uh, arrangements. I mean, his story did capture the investors for a while, but then um, his grandiosity got the better of him. And essentially, people fell out of love uh, with him, but also with the concept. So, uh, yeah, I think um, they, they have their limitations. Perhaps we should remind listeners at this point what narcissism actually means, uh, because the term has been used quite loosely recently. It all goes back to Sigmund Freud. Well, it doesn't go back to Freud and psychology, but he was the first, one of the first who wrote about narcissism more than 100 years ago. And as we know, Freud, he loved to refer to mythology in his analyses. So Narcissus is this beautiful hunter in Greek mythology, and uh, there comes Echo, a mountain nymph, a mountain creature who falls madly in love with him. He couldn't be bothered uh, by her and rejects her quite arrogantly. She is so heartbroken that she dissolves until only an echo sound remains of her. That's, that's the echo, you know. Nemesis, the god of revenge, does not like what he sees and takes, well, you guessed it, he takes revenge. So one day, Narcissus falls in love with his own reflection in a lake without realizing that it is him. He melts away out of passion and turns into a flower, the Narcissus, the, the daffodil. Sad story. So Freud basically argued that we all are like Narcissus and start from a position of self-love in early childhood. And that love is then gradually directed outward to others who we love. But if we do not receive love from others in return, we protect ourselves and go back to an immature state of self-love as a defense against a hostile world, so to speak. So at the core of narcissism is a trauma, a trauma that makes the person feel vulnerable to the world and shatters his or her self-esteem. Nowadays, narcissism is defined as a personality disorder uh, that comes with a grandiose view of oneself, uh, fantasies of infinite success, control, brilliance, and beauty, the belief that one is exceptional, and a strong desire for admiration. But it also comes with uh, somewhat antisocial behaviors, a lack of empathy, most of all, interpersonally oppressive behaviors. So that's narcissism in a nutshell. I'm sure people listening to this will probably be thinking about their own organizations. Uh, and I'm sure they're in a diverse set of organizational contexts. They're probably saying, hmm, some of those definitions do sound reasonably accurate in terms of the leader that I'm working with at the minute. So I'm sure there might be some aha moments going on uh, amongst our listeners. So Mark, does it remind you of anyone in your organization? 
Um, well, fortunately, in academia, we are reasonably autonomous. So uh, mm, you know what they say, right? If there's no narcissist around you, you're probably a narcissist. <laughs> I was going to ask you about your family. <laughs> but there is obviously a danger to over-psychoanalyze people. I mean, a personality disorder, that's, uh, that's quite a serious mental disease. I don't think that anyone with a personality disorder can be a high-functioning leader. But then the question is, with these classifications... When do we call a leader a narcissistic leader? I mean, what's the degree or the extent of narcissism that should raise red flags? And I think the research on narcissistic leadership is not quite clear on that point. We're very often just focusing on the extremes, which can be enlightening, I guess, and which brings us to Donald Trump, who has become the epitome of narcissistic leadership and who is the subject of our guest's new book. Michael's new book, I mean, he's, he may be talking about Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is the focus. It combines uh, psychoanalytic, but also sociological and other perspectives on Trump, which is, I think is a very uh, helpful way to kind of broaden the, the lens. But for our purposes, we're really looking at this um, more psychoanalytic uh, perspective. But I, I mean, the interesting thing about Trump is uh, exploring not only him as an individual at this point in time, but what does learning more about Trump help us to do in terms of understanding more about narcissistic leaders generally. And I think that's where our discussion has started. So when we come back at the end, I think we're going to be uh, thinking a bit more about what does Trump tell us about leadership and narcissistic personality? Uh, tell us about how, how do we work with narcissistic leaders? What do they mean for organizations? What do they mean for change through the, the, the lens of Trump? So Michael can help us develop some insight there. Today, we have Dr. Michael Maccabee, who's with us. Welcome, Michael. Michael has worked for a long time in the area of leadership. He originally started his career working with Eric Fromm back in the early 50s, actually, looking at uh, social character in Mexican villages. So he's a anthropologist by training. He, he then went to Harvard, decided that academic life was not really what he, where he wanted to have his impact, uh, set up his own consultancy business, uh, which has prospered since then, and has written uh, a range of works looking at leadership, but also the quality of working life as well, including being involved in the quality of working life movement in Sweden, where he was an advisor to the Swedish government and actually received a medal from the Swedish government for his work, and has made a significant impact in a range of different areas. And his current book, which we're happy to discuss with him today, is all about one of the, I suppose, leadership figures which is stirring up considerable controversy in the United States, but also globally. That is Donald Trump, who needs no introduction. Michael's latest book is really taking different perspectives on that. Uh, psychoanalytic, which is anchored in his own interests, but also sociological and historical. So the book actually brings a whole range of different perspectives to bear on understanding the Trump phenomenon. So welcome. Can I begin, Michael, by asking you about the book? I mean, there are quite a few books on Donald Trump uh, at the minute. It's, it's a kind of cottage industry in itself. He's, he's generated a lot of employment in, <laughs> by people writing about leadership. What, what motivated you to, to write this particular book? Well, there are two types of books generally about Trump. One is really just descriptive. 
with describing what's happened. And the other has come a lot from the mental health profession, particularly psychiatrists, who are diagnosing Trump, mainly as some form of narcissistic personality disorder. Well, I found that really very unsatisfactory. First of all, Donald Trump isn't sick. He's not suffering. He's making others suffer. But rather than diagnosing, I thought it's important to understand his motivations, to look at his quality. I mean, he wouldn't be president. He wouldn't be a billionaire if he was just a sick narcissist. If he was thought he was president, then you could call him a narcissistic personality disorder. But he is president. And furthermore, as I began to study him more, it seemed to me that the narcissism is really a reaction. It's a cover-up for an underlying marketing personality. Now, Eric Fromm first described the marketing personality, kind of person who has no real authentic sense of identity or or self-esteem, but needs it to come from his success or how people see him as a valuable person. And he very, very de- becomes extremely dependent on significant others to affirm his importance. And Trump has kind of defense against this kind of emptiness, which is really totally debilitating by creating this image, this narcissistic grandiose image of a great winner, somebody who is wonderful, and he needs to protect that image. He honed the image on television for years in the program The Apprentice, where he played this part. And he's even admitted to one of his former friends, uh, Scaramucci. He said, I'm I'm an act. And he even asked, how come people don't see it? Because they're taken in by this grandiose image that he keeps trying to reinforce constantly uh, through lies and exaggerations and, and so on. So I felt, number one, it's important to really understand the personality. Even though, by the way, in one of his books, Think Like a Billionaire, he cites my work on productive narcissists. And he says that really describes him. He's just like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. He's a productive narcissist, a visionary. But that's part of the pretense. That's part of the fake ideal that he needs to constantly have reinforced by his base. Now, uh, the other reason I thought it was important to put together this book was because you have to understand the sociological and historical context that he's in. He wouldn't be president in another time. He took advantage of a particular time in history of tremendous division, tremendous distrust of all elites. He was brilliantly able to create this kind of answer to people who were particularly on one side of the cultural war that we are facing right now. And people who felt that they were being called deplorables, they were made to feel worthless. He came in, I will give you back your self-esteem. Uh, this progressive cultural movement is is terrible. It's really undermining everything that's great in America. I'll give you back your self-worth. And he succeeded in creating this, this image of a great defender who will take nothing from anyone who understands all these elites. He knows how corrupt the swamp is and so on. 
Michael, in, in some of your in your previous work, you you talked about the leaders we need, and I, I, you draw upon this kind of context and about how societies, in a way, select the leaders that they need at a particular time. Uh, and in a way, you're suggesting that Trump is a leader that is needed, but needed by a certain segment or a certain community. Just as Hitler was. I mean, Hitler came in at a time of tremendous feelings of defeat and depression in Germany after the loss of World War I, the huge inflation, the terrible fear that communists will come in and take over. And he appeals to people who have lost everything. Also, again, it was a cultural war that he was dealing with. And I guess, in a way, to support your argument, and we, I mean, in the UK, we have similar uh, issues with leadership here with Boris Johnson. I think we see it elsewhere with Viktor Orban. There is a sort of general phenomenon of these types of leaders. Would you, all, would you call them all marketing narcissists? Or is narcissism a general, a general character of, of leaders of, in this particular space? We have to look at what a narcissist is. And it's a kind of type who lacks a strong superego, who, who creates an image. Uh, the most brilliant and productive are visionaries. They create a vision that others find hopeful. I mean, Trump is less of this kind of narcissist because he's really a marketing personality. The others were more real narcissists like Napoleon, like Hitler, like Mao, like Stalin. I mean, the, these people had clear sense of what they wanted to achieve. They were ruthless in doing it. Maybe Oban is like that. I don't know him well enough. What gives rise to a marketing narcissistic personality? How do these people develop? I mean, is there something in their family life? Is there something in their background? Eric Fromm's thesis was that we see in different eras, different social characters, different norm, normal personalities. And in the 19th century, it was much more of an obsessive personality because people were adapting to a world, an economic world of craft or a beginning of manufacturing, but it was farming. In the United States in 1860 was 75% farmers and craftspeople. Today, there are fewer than 1% farmers, and we have over 80% in the service industries that's true in France and Britain also. So we are seeing a change in the dominant mode of productions in society. And, and in every society, children are brought up to adapt to the dominant mode of production. That's how they're going to be successful. Uh, they're going to be successful in the, in the bureaucratic world of 20th century by being passing tests, by uh, fitting into a role uh, in a very uh, bureaucratic way. But in the 21st century, more and more, we are seeing a marketing personality necessary for success. More and more, you have to have this adaptive personality to be able, you're selling not only your product, but yourself all the time. Today, everyone's evaluated all the time at work, at, in social relationships, people constantly talking to each other about where everyone is on the, some scale of, of the market. Everyone becomes a commodity and they lose, they're losing their sense of inner identity. 
identity shifts according to where you are, what you have to, who you have to please, etc. Trump represents a way, you might even say, a solution to the marketing personality that has worked for him. Hmm. What I find interesting, Michael, about this marketing personality is this relationship to the followers, which seems different from the classic understanding of the narcissist. It seems the marketing personality is much more dependent on the approval of the people you're catering to, your su supporters. Absolutely. So they're really in deep, constant fear. Well, you could say generations ago in the 19th century or early 20th century, people, social control was by inner guilt of not doing the right thing. Now it's all anxiety. That social control is by anxiety that you're not you're not right. You're not dressed right. You're not you don't have the right credentials. You don't have the right attitude. Uh, you're not engaged enough in your business, and you have a whole industry promoting promoting the marketing attitude, the marketing orientation. Mm -hmm. But is that also part why Trump is so popular? Because they feel like they have more influence on him and that he is listening more to them? He's responding to them, his base. You can notice whenever he tries to become maybe a little more compassionate towards immigrants, the right-wing base commentators come right at him. Oh, you're, you have no balls. You're a wimp. And he goes right back to the tough image, which they want. If, if we are seeing more marketing personality types, which is being created by the high levels of anxiety, the nature of capitalism today, which in itself is creating much more anxiety about who we are. What does this mean for leading change in an organization if there's more of these marketing personality types around? I mean, what you seem to be suggesting is marketing personality combined with this narcissism is actually quite a toxic mix. You know, everyone talks about change. Yeah. But what kind of change? I mean, what's the point of change? What becomes crucial today is not just personality, but individual philosophy. I mean, go back to William James's pragmatism. He starts the whole essay on pragmatism, quoting G.K. Chesterton, who said, if a landlady had to decide who to rent a room to, she'd be more advised to understand that person's philosophy than their bank balance. Everyone has a philosophy, even though in most people it's rather unconscious. In, in many marketing people, the philosophy is really getting ahead and doing what works and so on. But today it becomes much more important to have a conscious philosophy with a purpose and values that are positive, creative, best organizations are the ones who have a philosophy that starts out with really creating value for people or really solving human problems. I mean, the, probably the best healthcare organization, I've studied many healthcare organizations in the United States. The best is the Mayo Clinic. It has a philosophy started with William Mayo in the 19th century, that the patient comes first, everything else, and collaborative medicine, of bringing together different specialties, working together, focusing on, on the patient rather than having to go to different specialists and so on and so forth, of doing all its research based on clinical research.
everyone doing it, creating a whole culture of clinically focused, patient focused, constantly learning and developing. So it, it seems to me, Michael, that the marketing narcissist, when it comes to change, is not really driven by a vision, which means the change that the marketing narcissist actually accomplishes is more incremental change, but not the disruptive big change that sometimes is needed. It's adapting, constantly adapting. I mean, this whole term now, agile organization, which has come in the Everyone's talking about agile organizations. What does that mean? He's just adapting more and more to the different market demands. You're suggesting, actually, we need, we need different leaders to uh, help us through this particular period of crisis, climate change, inequality. You know, we can, we can name quite easily the grand challenges that we're all facing. We've had some good ones around, like Angela Merkel, who are more disciplined and caring personalities, also in New Zealand. Uh, interesting that these are women who have a very, a, a much a much more maternal attitude to society. I don't know if that's enough. What we need are people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who uh, really developed a vision of a fair, more just, as well as economically growing society and really stand up and take on. As Roosevelt did, he, he took on the whole business community, which tried to put him down. One thing about the most effective narcissistic leaders and visionaries is they create teams. You can't do this all by yourself. I mean, Napoleon, Napoleon was completely successful as long as he had Talleyrand to keep him a little bit on the ground. The minute he fired Talleyrand and went off to Russia, that was the end of it. Steve Jobs was a total failure when he tried to do everything himself at Apple. When he started to partner with Tim Cook, suddenly Apple became a great company. And I, I can see many, many examples. Trump, he can't stand to have strong people around him. I mean, Lincoln had a team of rivals that he brought in to support him. FDR had a brain trust that he brought in to create the ideas that he could then develop into a vision. It's not just an individual. It's a team. Mm -hmm. I want to touch on this term of honesty that you mentioned in your last chapter. So in your last chapter, you were talking about the president we need. And one of the things that you mentioned was honesty. And I was wondering if you asked Trump supporters, they would say that Trump is one of the most honest politicians they have ever seen. So, and it seems that in their mind, honesty is defined as authenticity, someone who has no filter, someone who just says what he thinks in the moment, even if he contradicts himself, even if he exaggerates, even if it's not the truth. I don't think you would find a definition in any dictionary. It's clear honesty is saying what you consider to be true and as opposed to making things up. Now, for example, Rafael Ramirez has, uh, your, your colleague Mark, has written an article on, on the aesthetic element of leadership and how leaders who have an aesthetic view often distort reality to fit their view of what looks good and feels good. Now, Trump even admits doing that. 
There is a, a book by one of his former colleagues in the golfing industry. This person says he was with Trump once, and Trump introduced him inflating his background in a way that wasn't true. And he said to Trump afterwards, why did you introduce me like that? Why didn't you tell the truth? And Trump said, oh, it just sounded a lot better. Part of this uh, narcissistic defense is really combined with a certain aesthetic element. He has a very strong aesthetic element. I, I mean, you may not like his taste, but uh, it's constantly looking, calling the beautiful things. He wants a beautiful wall keeping out the Mexicans. He looks at people in terms of how they look. Are they handsome? Or are the women beauties? People like Steve Jobs had that too. They would distort reality. But it wasn't so dangerous in a business leader. So you have to begin to look at honesty and from a different, different points of view of what it means. Michael, thank you for the interview. It was great talking to you. So that was really interesting. Mark, what, what do you take away from this interview? Well, it's a, it's a much more nuanced view, isn't it? I mean, because this term narcissism can be a black box that we throw everything into. But I think what Michael's doing is kind of finding some levels of granularity here. And that if we're talking about narcissistic leaders, maybe we need to start to differentiate different types in here. And I guess Michael's work over the years has, has, has kind of focused on that, this concept of productive narcissist that he developed was really emphasizing the ability of leaders to be quite entrepreneurial, to build something quite innovative, something fresh, something that actually can serve mankind quite quite well. So there's that productive side of it. But here he's he's really ad identified another type and he's he's really foregrounding this marketing type. Yeah, no, I, I find this distinction between narcissism and marketing personality quite intriguing. The marketing character who is less guided by a grandiose and self-enhancing vision, but basically sees him or herself as a commodity, a commodity that can be bought or sold as long as it helps the person to get ahead. And it, it explains the obsessive loyalty to a base with which he does not share many values. Uh, as Mary Trump, his, his niece wrote in her new book, quote, The only time Donald went to church was when the cameras were there. It's mind-boggling, but that's all about his base. He has no principles, none, end of quote. It also explains his loyalty to figures like Vladimir Putin, whatever he sold him. Think of his obsession with rallies, yeah. connecting with his group and about stories and about telling them what they want to hear. And, you know, it, it, it does sound convincing. It makes me also think that Trump serves a bigger market than just his base. I mean, take you as media with their 24-hour news cycle, for example. It has become really easy to fill up all these hours with his tweets and scandals every day that generate a lot of attention. If you think about the recent article in the New York Times on, on how slowly Trump went down a ramp after a speech... What does it mean? Is he sick? Does he have Parkinson? I mean, you don't need a journalist for that. Just an intern or even an AI system to write articles like that that generate a lot of clicks. You mentioned the whole cottage industry of books about Donald Trump, not even uh, to talk about all the commentators and comedians who, who make a living just covering Trump every day. 
So, I mean, as Michael said, we have certain leaders in certain times and Trump feeds the market of fast and trivial information exchanges very well. I think in a, in a way what you're saying here is that Trump actually is serving the culture war dynamic in the US very, very well. Yeah. So, so these different groups through their own particular lenses can select what data they they want to confirm their own particular biases. So it's a it's a kind of defense mechanism against change in some ways in America. Trump is actually serving a very useful role against change in the US system, both politically, economically, and whatever else. And Trump, if you think about his role in the White House, has been has been very helpful in that way because he's created dysfunction. There is there is no team that he has because people are being fired left, right, and center. There's a lot of instability. So there actually is no change at all happening. Yeah, good point. Trump's reminds me of the naughty child at the dinner table that grabs all the attention of the family. Put the feet down, don't splash the food around. The family is so occupied with the naughty child that Other inconvenient discussions do not have any room, such as the brother's bad grade in school that day, the father's trouble at work, or the marital problems of the parents. So Trump, in a way, is to society what a squirrel is to a dog, mm. a constant distraction, but, but one that unconsciously serves a, a purpose to a lot of people and groups on both sides of uh, the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of, oh, look over there. There's a dog. Oh, no, look over there. There's a pigeon. It's kind of a <laughs> squirrel. <laughs> so you can you can never actually stand still for any moment and reflect about anything because there'll always be a squirrel in the tree. It probably tells us a lot about not only organizations, but wider societies and kind of the anxiety they're going through at particular points in time and why these leaders might serve a function. Yeah, exactly. That's also the reason why we should take the research on individual leaders with a grain of salt. Because, I mean, leaders do not act in a vacuum, mm -hmm. but within a system. And their behaviors can have very different effects depending on the system or the context they are in. They may serve very different functions to different groups and people consciously or unconsciously. But there's another question about narcissistic leadership that, that we haven't really addressed. And that is a very practical question. What do you do if you have a narcissistic leader in your team and you're dependent on them? How do you deal with such a person? I think there's a bit of a paradox in what you said. Narcissistic and team, do they ever go together? Yeah. It's such an interesting point, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the research shows us that uh, narcissistic leaders are, are not very good at, at creating teams. In fact, the only way that they create a team is through dislike of the leader, I think. That's the one thing that might actually generate some team cohesion, that behind the scenes, actually, they're all agreed that they don't really like this person. And this leads me to an interesting story, actually. A guy called Richard Greenbury, who used to be chief executive of Marks and Spencers. People may remember Marks and Spencers. It's a, it's a retail brand, which has been in slow decline for many years. But at one stage in the 1990s, it was actually a very big, even international retail brand. People used to go there not only to buy underwear, If you're in the UK, you went to Marks and Spencer's to buy underwear and socks, but they extended into food and fashion and all the rest of it. And I was like, they even had a store on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Can you believe that? People in France were buying British fashion on the Champs-Élysées. That's narcissistic grandiosity right there to believe that that works. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Greenbury led this massive international growth and expansion 
But th- but then the kind of crisis hit around 2000. There was a decline, a bit of an economic downturn. M&S caught a cold. Its share price plummeted. Greenbury tried to get the team together to address these issues. But basically what happened was his top team in the, uh, in the, in the business actually all got into corridor politics. They all started briefing against him. They all began to undermine his authority. And eventually he had to go. What is interesting there is that they all supported him and they all thought he was brilliant when they were gaining from it. But when the context changed, they were very glad to all stab him in the back and get rid of him. None of them supported him. So actually, this is interesting in terms of how do you deal with a narcissistic leader? I think people in that case were kind of trying to work with them when they could see mutual benefit here. If I can get something from this relationship, I will persevere with it. But if I can't get something from it, I'm going to ditch it. So alliances with the other people around the narcissistic leader are important. Yeah. I mean, it's risky because a narcissist can get very paranoid and probably feels betrayed if he or she senses collaboration of the people around them. Uh, So these alliances can only operate in the shadow, I guess. But at the same time, it is important to, to break this dependency culture that narcissistic leaders tend to create uh, around them. Yeah, because it's, it's a very strong dependency culture. We're waiting for the charismatic narcissistic leader to sort of tell us what to do, show us the future, come up with a more empowering vision, something, a bigger story. Yeah, I think you need to break that dynamic by not losing sight of the relationships to the other people around the leader and, and really think about your alliances on the long term. And then there's the whole issue of one-on-one interactions with a narcissistic leader, right? I think you have to be quite manipulative. Uh, You need to constantly stroke their egos, praise them for their ideas, give them credit for any accomplishments, even if they don't deserve it. And you probably need to do that in a smart and believable way because they're used to being flattered and can see through empty praise. If they ask you for your honest opinion, obviously never give it to them. If you need to motivate them, uh, you have to sell it in terms of how well it makes them look. I guess never openly criticize them, obviously. And let their crazy ideas and requests die discreetly without any um, opposition. And most of all, never expect any empathy or praise. Uh, You need to get used to boost your self-esteem somewhere else, basically. Mm. Well, (laughs) I mean, boy, that does not sound like a lot of fun at work. You know, I I think at some point you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And what what are my limits? Uh, I, I think you need a red line in terms of your values, in terms of who you are, in terms of what you believe in, Hmm. you need to protect yourself from following these people all the way through their craziness. At some point you need, you just need to leave. Yeah. I think, I think you've hit hit the nail on the head there, uh, Matisse, about the importance of purpose and values. And maybe one way to work with a narcissistic leader is to continually revisit your values and also the purpose of the organization and use that as a, a as a resource and maybe as a, a means of working with that leader. So if you can keep that core, maybe you can work with the leader in a way, the narcissistic leader, to kind of keep direct the direction of travel in the direction that you think is is important. 
and if it doesn't work, you 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 step out, don't you? Because you say, hey, this is this doesn't feel right. It's not for me. It doesn't fit with the values. It doesn't fit with the higher purpose that you know we've signed up to. And and and, and you know, and there's lots of examples, isn't there, of, of people who've crossed the line in terms of moral turpitude or ethical uh, issues in terms of the behaviour of organisations. So you might have to whistleblow, for example in an organizational context where you have a narcissistic leader because, you know, they've maybe not told, crossed the line, not told the truth about a product or blowing up the possibility of this product doing something amazing, which it doesn't necessarily do, which could be a risk to society, actually, if you don't bring that to bear. So I think I think people in the leadership team, other people in the organizations recognizing that they do have a, a role to play for the wider, the, the wider benefit, the greater good. And I think it, it all starts with awareness, like hearing more and more about narcissism, hearing a podcast like this, uh, that helps to understand that it's not you who is going mad. It's not you who becomes paranoid about your leader. And there are many people who struggle as much as you do working with or under narcissists. And to get back to your earlier question, Mark, about whether we have hit peak narcissism in leadership yet, I, I think there are signs, especially in the COVID-19 crisis, that yes, we might have seen the worst because the crisis opens our eyes to what good change leadership looks like. And it has knocked off already many narcissistic leaders from their pedestal in politics and in business. And I think there is a general realization that leadership without collaboration without humility without a calm sense of reality is just not getting us through this i think i think you're right i mean if we think of the nature of the problems we have which are you know complex uh but you know the kind of wicked pro the wicked problems that we have uh, it requires much more collaboration within the organization and across organizations to 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 really tackle them well I mean, the paradox of narcissistic leaders is that they they give this idea of effectiveness and success, but paradoxically, they're disempowering groups and making groups and organizations less effective at the end of the day. So I, I think you're right. I think what we need are leaders who can really harness the group, harness the organization and, and lead to more collaborative approaches to these wicked types of problems. I mean, I've been reading much more about sociobiology and evolutionary theory. And it's interesting that uh, altruism and cooperation are more of the signature signatures of humans than competition, individualism, narcissism, or whatever else. So in a way, if the species wants to survive, I think if we believe you know, the evolutionary perspective, and I think there's a lot of evidence around that, there is hope, I think, that we will begin to select more of these leaders, selecting leaders that are going to help us for the future. It's always good to end on hope, Mark. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all we have at this time of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> that is getting sad now. I think we need to stop. <laughs> Until next time on The Change Pod. Until I first met you, I was lonesome. And when you came inside, dear, my heart grew light, and this whole world seemed new to me. You're really swell, I have to admit you. Deserve expressions that really fit you. And so I've racked my brain hoping to explain.
thank you for joining us on today's ChangePod and we look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to click on subscribe if you like this podcast. See you next time.